Well, thank you. Good evening, Redemption Tempe. As Ricardo said, my name is Craig St. John. Uh, I not only have one difficult act to follow, I have three, Ricardo, Josh, and Holly. So thanks for putting on the pressure for me. All right, so Ricardo gave a little bit of my background. Um, I've actually been coming to this church since 2007 when it was under a different name. Um, I've been on staff for uh, part-time for a couple of years, and some of the main roles I had been serving in are on our communications team. So I've done a lot of our social media, I manage our blog, and uh, I've put together those Ephesians study guides that some of you might be going through. So uh, most of that stuff is behind the scenes. I've taught a few classroom-style classes here and there. Um, this is my, I was going to say first, but actually my second time preaching. I preached this morning, so I'm now eight hours into my preaching career. So uh, bear with me, but I, I had fun this morning. I hope to have fun again with you this afternoon. Um, so those are some of the main things I've done. My first volunteer role, in fact, at the church back in 2008 was at, called a Connect Agent, which basically meant that if you were new to the church or trying to get plugged in, I would help connect you to a community group or an area of service. And the forum that we used for that was our online platform at the time called The City. Is anybody around back then that remembers The City? A lot more than I thought, and I heard a cheer. That's interesting. Um, I think that's about as many as we had at the nine, and we had like three times more people. But uh, it was also uh, known that that was a hated platform, so we eventually got rid of it and got something new, which I'm sure is much more loved now. But uh, so on The City, I, I would try to plug people in. Um, it was a social networking site, so you could friend people, just like you do on Facebook or Twitter or, or whatever. And... Uh, I, over the course of about a year, I had like 100, 200, maybe even 300 friends. If you went to anybody else's page, nobody else was friending people up on the city. That was, in fact, super lame, which is something I now realize. Uh, so, but if you went to anybody else's page, you would see my mug right there. So I was essentially, and I'm going to date myself even more, I was the MySpace Tom of our church. Okay, some of you remember that. Yeah, Tom gets a shout out too, sweet. So Tom, he was the guy with the white t-shirt. Uh, he was in everybody's top eight. If you knew how to kick him off, you probably would, but otherwise he was there on everybody's page. I was that guy. Um, but eventually we got rid of the city and with the death, the death of my city, the city, not my city, I didn't rule it, um, came, became the, uh, the death of my fame, but it's okay, I'm rolling with it. Finally over it a decade later. But uh, to continue with the dorkiness of my digital life, back in 2007, I actually met my lovely bride, Jessica, who's sitting right up front here, on Match.com. And I say dorky, I don't want to offend anybody who's currently doing online dating. It was much more taboo in 2007. We kind of kept it under wraps. When people would ask, where'd you meet? Uh, friend of a friend, I don't know. So it wasn't something we wanted to be common knowledge. We kind of like actually told our families like two, two years later where we met. Um, but anyway, so we are a Match.com success story. We submitted our story. They never published it. But we got married in, uh, on February 26th of 2010. By uh, August of 2012, we started having kids like crazy. Uh, so we have, they're all super young and really close in age. Um, not quite as close in age as Josh and Holly's four-year-olds. Uh, well, I still have to get that story. But uh, so Harper is five and a half. She's on her way to first grade. We're sitting right up front here. Um, Everett is four, also up front. And then over in children's ministry, we have Emery, who's three. She is a pistol, but she's adorable. And uh, Weston is almost 18 months. I know many of you who have served in children's ministry have loved on them over the years, so thank you for that. I also want to promise you that we are not going to add or to the maxed out ratios of kids. We're not going to have any more. We're done. So you can blame anybody else if the classrooms continue to get full. It's not us. At least it's not anymore. Um, so that's a little background. Before we go ahead and get into God's word this morning, I just want to go ahead and pray, and then we'll get rolling. Father in heaven, I thank you for your Holy Spirit, who has spoken over the centuries, over the millennia, through prophets, through apostles, and through evangelists, to give us the words that we have recorded in the scriptures today, God. God, I thank you that your word, as you tell us, is living and active. God, I thank you that your spirit is alive and present in this room today. 
God, I pray that your spirit would be present within me and that the words that flow from my mouth would be your words and not mine. I pray that you would speak to each man, woman, and child in this room so that they would hear the precise message that you want them to hear, that I would not stand in the way of that, that I would merely be a vessel. God, please distract us all from our distractions this morning and just be present with us. In Christ's precious name, amen. Okay, um, we are, before we get into God's Word, if you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, uh, either your own Bible or a Bible app, we don't do ushers at 5 o'clock. I'm sorry, I'm a morning person. <laughs> but anyway, forget that. But uh, we're, going to, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. And to recap, um, just for or those of you who are either new or who haven't been with us for the past couple of months, we've been in Ephesians. Uh, we're about 60% of the way through the letter. It's a six-chapter letter. Um, over the first three chapters, which we covered earlier this year, uh, kind of the 30,000-foot view of Paul's theme is he's arguing um, who the person and, of Christ is and what his work is, largely the building up of his church. And so one of the chief themes that we've been drawing out week to week is the community of the church and the unity that we see within that. One of the principal things of Paul's atoning, or Paul's, that Paul's writing about Christ's atoning work, uh, that would be heresy, uh, Christ's atoning work is uh, that he's reconciled two otherwise alienated people, Jew and Gentile, together, making them one in Christ. He broke down a dividing wall of hostility. So that's, as we've been covering this, those are the chief things we want to um, be able to pull out in each week that we're preaching. Sorry. Um, and then in Ephesians uh, 4, we, we kind of get to the part 2, if you will, the chapters 4, 5, and 6. And chapter uh, 4, verse 1, which I'll go ahead and read if you want to open with me there. Um, it, Paul writes, I therefore, and I'll skip part of it, Paul, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So over these last three chapters, Paul's laying out what the calling of the believer ought to look like in light of what he argued in the first three chapters. And two weeks ago, Ricardo began introducing the section we're in now, kind of a subsection of that, which begins in chapter 4, verse 17. And um, that is what we're to put off in light of our former selves and then put on now in, now in our new identity in Christ. Last week, Ricardo specifically uh, preached a great sermon on putting, uh, from Ephesians 4.25, putting off falsehood and putting on truth. Today, we're going to discuss uh, putting on anger, and yes, we need to put it on, and I'll talk about that more for the next 20 minutes or so, and then uh, put off sin that can flow from our anger, and then next, next week, we'll talk about putting um, off theft and putting on good work, and then the pattern continues through chapter 5, verse 4, which you can uh, look ahead later uh, to uh, have a sneak peek of that. So uh, again, these things have to fit, though, within the broader theme of Paul's message, which is about the community of the church and the building up of it and the unity that we have um, as fellow, uh, fellow followers of Christ. So these things that we're putting off and putting on are not for our own personal piety or spiritual edification, as important as those things are, but they have to fit under that arc of unity. So we, when we think about these things, how can we edify others? How can we raise up others with these things? So specifically, which gets complicated, is talking about anger. We have to figure out how that is a good thing for community, um, which I hope to get through. So what, when Ricardo assigned this topic to me, um, and I'll go ahead and read the text so you know what we're digging into before we move on. Ephesians 4, 26 through 27, which should be up on the screen. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Short and sweet, good enough. We could probably stop there, but I have another 20 minutes with you all, so we'll unpack that further. But anyway, when Ricardo assigned this topic to me about six weeks ago, I was a little bit conflicted. I'm going to come up here and talk to you guys about anger. And I consider myself a person who struggles with anger. And I know I'm not alone. That's something we all can do. Uh, that's something we all can relate to, most of us anyway. I just actually just talked to a guy before this who says he never gets angry. I think I believe him. Um, we talked about a lion last week, but anyway. Uh, <clears throat> 
But I, I particularly know I struggle with it. It's an area of sanctification in which I know the Spirit needs to do a lot of work within me. So it's a little humbling to come up here and say, I'm going to talk to you about anger as if I have it all figured out. And uh, over the past couple of weeks, it's been particularly trying within my household. Uh, the way our schedules kind of function, Jess is in mine, uh, she works four evenings a, w- a week, um, four, yeah, four 10-hour shifts a week down at Banner Desert Medical Center down the street. Um, and then, so when she's home in the morning, still tired after a long shift, she tries to, I'm basically like tri-vocational, I won't get into my other jobs right now, but most of those are remote as well. So she's gracious enough to let me get out of the house, get some work done. It's kind of hard to work with four little kids around the house. So I'll be a little bit more productive. And then we kind of do a baton toss when I come back at noon and she goes off to work. But my, my work day hasn't ended. So I'm kind of multitasking, trying to uh, love on and care for my kids, but also trying to get work done. So my stress levels, I'm preparing to preach for the very first time is increased over what it normally would be. So I have a much, a much lower tolerance for my kids. They're wonderful. They're, they're fantastic, but they do what kids do. They whine, they scream, they pull each other's hair out, they fight, they leave toys all over the place that you trip on. So I, I've been, uh, my temper's been a little higher than it should be. I've been using a tone that I'm not particularly proud of. So uh, I've been uh, shorter with Jess, my wife, for no reason of her, no, no fault of her own more than I should be. So I've just been convicted as I've been preparing her for this over the past two weeks. But then I'm reminded that anybody who's ever been up on this stage or hopefully any church stage, we realize that we don't have it all figured out. So it's not as if we're speaking down to you all like, I know something you don't. And one thing that is encouraging that Ricardo often says in his preaching uh, is <coughs> discipleship, or in this case, teaching, is one beggar just showing another beggar where the bread is at. So I hope I've been able to absorb at least a couple morsels over the past two weeks that I can fling your way, and hopefully that makes some sense this morning. So we'll go to our text once again, um, and just one other thing here. I've heard this passage preached, I was you know, listening to samples of little snippets of sermons online and reading some commentaries, and this has been preached really well, but I think it's also been preached in two bad ways with a couple themes that I've seen. It's either emphasizing the be angry part that you see up there, as if the church needs further affirmation that we need to be angry. Unfortunately, that's a, a right caricature that we ha- that is often seen of the church, is that we're just angry people who are out picketing and protesting things, which can be a good thing, and we'll get to that later. But uh, that, you know, we're holding off, we're, we're judgy. Or the other way to preach this is, well, if we're to be angry and not sin, as Paul said, that's not even possible. So let's just, we can't be angry at all. That's, that's the message, just don't be angry. And I don't think Paul is preaching either, or speaking about either in his letter. So we would need to unpack that a little bit further to make sense of it. And I, I think where some of the confusion lies when we're trying to read this biblical text or any other text is we bring our 21st century Western presuppositions and assumptions to a text that was written, in this case, in Ephesians, um, to a first century Greek-speaking audience in Asia Minor. So we need to think of how Paul was writing, what his intent was, and how his original hearers actually heard that, rather than putting our own definitions upon the text. And so one modern definition that I think we can apply to the text and maybe have a wrong interpretation of what Paul's saying comes from the American Psychological Association. And I mentioned this this morning, if there's any psychologists in the room, I'm not dissing you or your profession. I love you, you do great work. Um, But I do have a problem with this definition. And you don't even have to own it. I'm sure the APA has more, but this is their main definition from the Encyclopedia of Psychology, which I'll read. Anger is an emotion characterized by antagonism towards someone or something you feel has deliberately done you wrong. Anger can be a good thing. It can give you a way to express negative feelings, for example, or motivate you to find solutions to problems. But excessive anger can cause problems. Increased blood pressure and other physical changes associated with anger make it difficult to think straight and can harm your physical and mental health. So on the surface, that's a fine pathological definition. It's utilitarian for one. Um, You know, there's some positive aspect to being angry, and we're not supposed to sit in our anger, so those are helpful. But here's my issue with it. 
The definition basically says, paraphrasing, when you are angry, you are able to feel this way. It's, it's really all about you. So it's a very individualistic anger. So it's a fine definition on, on its own, but how does that fit within Paul's letter, which is not about you, it's about the community of believers and the unity that we have with one another. So I think it has to be something different. This definition makes me think of something we can all relate to, which is uh, driving in traffic in the hot Arizona sun. Let's say you're going southbound down the 101, you're leaving your office in North Scottsdale, heading 20 miles away to Chandler. You put your hand on the steering wheel, pull your hands off, it's 130 degrees. Uh, you drive for about 20 minutes, you've only made it five miles, your AC's finally kicking on. It's kind of starting to cool off, the beads of sweat running down your brow and your back. And then suddenly there's a break in traffic, and you get to speed up a little bit, maybe you're going like 30, and there's just uh, maybe a car's length in front of you, so it's no longer bumper to bumper, but vroom, a Prius comes right in front of you. I'm picking on a Prius for some reason. And you slam on your brakes, you almost rear-end Mr. Prius, you, and what do you do? You immediately wail on your horn for a much longer sustained period than necessary, and you give a certain hand gesture that I'm absolutely not going to do in church. Somebody thought I was about to do it. And I'm sure none of us have ever done that. I mean, we're church people. We don't do that sort of thing, but in this hypothetical situation. Somebody out there might have done that. Uh, but we, we've all been there, but we might try to rationalize it and justify it. You know, we were concerned about other motorist safety, but at the end of the day, we know that's not the case. And in fact, we just did the same dangerous driving maneuver two miles back. We only care about how that actually affects us personally. So that's what the, the uh, APA definition makes me think of. So what exactly could Paul perhaps be thinking of? And let's just unpack that a little bit going back to our text. Ephesians 4, 25, or sorry, 26 through 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So let's unpack just this be angry really quick. So uh, be angry in the Greek is an imperative command. So Paul indeed is commanding us to be angry. But to unpack that a little bit further, because that still doesn't make sense to us, like we're commanded to be angry, why? Um, one Thing that I think helps serves as an interpretive key to this text is to go to Psalm 4, chapter 4, verse 4, where Paul is actually directly quoting David in Psalm 4, 4, and that text should be up there. I'm not going to read it in its entirety, but I'll give you the gist of what's going on in this psalm. So this is an individual lament attributed to David. Uh, David's crying out to God for help, as he does in many of the psalms, although in this psalm we don't know the specific occasion, but we do know that David is calling out to these men in verse 2 who are his adversaries or his foes, and he's the one, uh, these are the men that he's directly addressing in verse 4, which should be on the next slide, uh, be angry and do not sin. So David's talking to these men specifically. So we don't know why these men are angry with David, but we do know what David is not doing. He's not telling them to not be angry. So David is, in, in essence, justifying, saying that they are justified in their anger for whatever that reason is, but he's saying, do not sin. So in verse 2 of this psalm, David, you know, some ways they might sin is uh, dishonoring his name, speaking vain lies, or some things mentioned in, in verse 2 of that. So there has to be a way that they cannot sin. So in essence, he's saying, keep your rage within yourself. It's okay for you to have that, but you can't let it come out and cause sin against myself or somebody else. So commentators say that this psalm actually became a, kind of a customary statement uh, leading up to the time of Paul. So Paul's hearers, at least his uh, Jewish Christian hearers, Greek-speaking Jewish Christian hearers, would have already known this statement and been familiar with it. So the fact that there's an imperative, a command that says be angry did not surprise them. This might be, seem weird to us in our context, but it was not weird to them. <clears throat> uh, so why... Let's unpack this, this anger a little bit more. So we, we often refer to this as righteous anger. In fact, that's how we titled this sermon for today. 
But the words righteous anger and righteous indignation do not, in fact, appear anywhere in the biblical text, let alone in Ephesians. But we can kind of deduce specifically from verse 4, if, we're, if there's a way for us to be angry and not sin, let's think. The opposite of sin is holiness or righteousness. Those are attributes of God. God himself is the only sinless person. If God is righteous and holy and is angry, that's no surprise to anybody. There must be a righteous way for us to be angry. Now, we can look to the Old Testament to see examples of God's anger, but a better place to probably go for more our practical understanding of this is we can better relate to the second person of the Trinity, Christ, who put on flesh and did demonstrate his anger in some accounts in the New Testament. And perhaps the most common one we think of is Christ, Jesus, flipping over the tables of the money changers. And we see this account in all four of the Gospels, but I just want to highlight real quick the one from John, where uh, John 2, 13 through 17. And again, I won't read this text all the way through, but I'll just uh, describe the scene here. So uh, annually, at the time of Passover, Jews who were scattered throughout the region, who weren't um, living within Jerusalem, they were in the diaspora, kind of the scattered throughout uh, the area, they would make a pilgrimage every year to come to the temple for two chief purposes, which to, was to uh, pay their temple tax and also to give a sacrifice, um, an offering. And some non-Jews would travel with them as well. These are people who worshipped Yahweh, the Jewish God, um, but they were not, in fact, ethnically Jewish. Now, the temple... Uh, only accepted one form of currency for their temple tax, and it was not the currency that you would find within the, these people's um, lands of origin. So, and, and furthermore, it was really difficult to travel a significant distance with the animal that you are going to offer when you get to the temple. So some uh, good entrepreneurial business folks saw some opportunities here, which was they could uh, <clears throat> exchange the currency, and they did so at an exorbitant rate, as scholars tell us, and uh, further, they would have animals available for purchase, but due to the low supply of animals and the high demand for animal sacrifice, they gouged the prices like crazy. Uh, some commentators say, actually say that the merchants here were exploiting the poor, and Jesus actually calls this theft in uh, Mark 11, which I don't have on the screen, but Mark 11 covers the same passage, where Jesus says that these merchants have turned his father's house into a den of thieves. And further, Jesus in that same verse says, when it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. And he's quoting Isaiah there, a house of prayer for all nations. So what that latter part means, in the outer court of the temple was where these merchants were set up. They had their tables for money changing and uh, selling uh, the animals to be slaughtered. That was the area where only the non-Jewish people could be. And remember I said the non-Jews would come to worship as well, whereas if you were ethnically Jewish, you could go into the inner part of the temple. So the non-Jews had their worship of God disrupted by this mini-mall that was set up in there. So there were two principal things here that angered Jesus, which was one is God, his father's house being defiled, and secondly, that there was disruption of worship of God, specifically isolating certain people who were the non-Jews, when, of course, Jesus cares about unity, and he died for all creation, not just one ethnicity. One word that does not appear in this passage or any of the other three uh, is the word anger. It's not actually in there. I mean, we can assume that Jesus was angry or he's flipping things over. <clears throat> oh, I should, I should also mention, what Jesus does here to show his anger is he fastens a whip of cords, which we can read up in verse 15. So I've never personally fashioned a whip of cords, but I can only imagine that it takes some amount of time. Jesus first had to procure whatever you fashion a whip with. I'm guessing there's some sharp pieces of leather and some shards of sharp things. And even though he's Jesus, he's not just hey, whip, do your thing. He had to fasten this thing together for 10, 15, 20 minutes, however long that took. And in that time, he didn't change his mind. His anger did not relent. Jesus was still angry at the defilement of his father's house and what the activity that was going on there. And then he finished making the whip of cords and drove out the money changers and the merchants. Jesus cared deeply about this. 
And as I started to say, the word anger doesn't appear here, but the word anger does appear in another passage and another story in Mark 3, um, 1 through 6. And this is the only time in all the Gospels that the word anger is directly connected to something that Jesus is doing. And this is the story of the man with the withered hand. And again, I want the words are on the screen. I'll just describe the scene here. So we don't know much about this man. We know his hand was withered. Luke tells us it was his right hand. So it was either uh, he was experiencing paralysis or atrophy. We don't know if it was something from his birth, but it is something that affected his daily life. He was not able to perform whatever trade he would have quite as well. He had a special need, and as such, in his day, he would have been seen as a second, maybe third-class citizen. But Jesus saw him in the synagogue, and he had mercy on him. He felt compassion for him. But meanwhile, the Pharisees who are there are just looking for an opportunity to plot, to trap and plot against Jesus. Because it was the Sabbath, Mosaic law said that you could not do work on the Sabbath, so they had this legalistic, pharisaical interpretation of the law that would not allow them to show mercy, even though God's intent in his law was always to show mercy regardless. So Jesus is knowing what they're thinking, but rather than lashing out at them, he does look at them in anger as we read in verse 15 of this. And I can only imagine what Jesus' look of anger looks like. He's probably glared at me, and I don't want to know what it looks like, though. He looked, looking at them in anger, but then he doesn't flip over any tables. He just proceeds with his act of mercy after asking them a question while these guys are seething in their anger because he's disrupted their religious way of life. So a couple things that we can conclude about from both of these narratives is that Jesus cares, there are certain things that anger Jesus. And my definition kind of of righteous anger are, uh, it's a response to that which breaks the heart of God. So we can conclude from these stories that things that break the heart of God, things that broke Jesus' heart, again, are his father's house or his father's name being defiled, disrupting um, access and worship to God, of God, and also uh, standing in the way of somebody trying to show mercy. Jesus cared deeply about these things. So that's why I wanted to emphasize that this is an imperative, it is a command, be angry. However, what's the part that we can't do? We cannot sin in light of that. But why are we to be angry? What does that look like in community? So in in our own communities, in our own uh, groups of people we love and know, if somebody comes forward and tells you, that they just got diagnosed with cancer, or if another person says that their home just got broken into and some valuables and some things that had lots, held lots of memory for them were taken. Uh, <clears throat> these are things that break the heart of God. God uh, cancer, disease, break God's heart. Theft breaks God's heart. Uh, while cancer can lead to death, and thank God it doesn't always, there's medical technology that can um, prevent that, but disease that leads to death, death itself, oppression, theft, greed, Uh, families being separated, racism, bigotry, genocide. These are things that break the heart of God. These are things that God is not okay with. These are effects of the fall. So God is angry at these things. Thus, we should be as well. And um, one thing about God's anger here I should note is it's it's a reaction that flows from his love. Because God so loved the world so much, he cannot bear with his world being out of order, out of the way he initially intended it. So because of human rebellion, because of rupture in relationships, we do have the effects of the fall, and those are things that deeply anger God, and they should anger us as well. So my first point for my sermon today is certain things anger God, so they should anger us as well. And I'll go ahead and throw up a second point that flows from that. It could be a 1.2. Not everything that angers us angers God. And the reason I say that is if you think of the Pharisees who were angry with Jesus in John chapter 2 because he was disrupting their way of worship, God doesn't side with them in their anger. So there are things that anger us. That doesn't mean God's on our side with those things. 
And there's one thing else we can conclude from these stories is we can't flip over the money tables. That is something that Jesus alone can do as vengeance belongs to God. Paul wrote in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. And I don't have verse 20 up there, but it specifically says that we are to also show our um, mercy to our enemies. So that takes it a step further. Vengeance is not for us to give. We are not the ones to be walking in and flipping over tables. We are to show mercy and compassion even to our enemies. So my next point is that vengeance belongs to God alone, but he won't necessarily avenge our annoyances. And I put that latter half of that point on there because of point two. The things that don't anger God, if these are just annoyances of ours that aren't rightful anger, we should not expect God to avenge those things. So let's move on to our uh, next part of the text, and then we'll wrap up here shortly. Uh, so we already had be angry and do not sin. And the next part that we're covering is uh, do not, oh, I'll get the text up there real quick. Sorry, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, we'll go back to this one actually. Sorry. So one thing that Jesus uh, did do in his earthly ministry when he was angry, he only showed anger towards the things I already mentioned. God's house being defiled, God's name being defiled, mercy not being shown. But Jesus never was angry at the things that happened to him personally. And a lot happened, as we know, the cross did. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2.23, when he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus gave us the picture of what being angry and not sinning looks like, and that is what we are to model. And with that, we'll go ahead and go back to our main text in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. So the second part, do not let the sun go down in your anger. So I already mentioned that be angry and do not sin was a customary saying in the time of Paul. Um, that his, people would have under, that his uh, audience would have understood. The next part, do not let the sun go down on your anger, was also a customary statement. However, it didn't come from the scriptures itself. This was a, uh, tr- in the tradition of Pythagoras, the same A squared plus B squared equals C squared guy, if you remember that from geometry. Uh, yay, math geeks. Um, but anyway, so this custom uh, basically was that if somebody angered you, by, uh, the end of the, before the end of the day, before sundown, you were to meet with them, join right hands, embrace, and be reconciled. So they understood that this was not just your anger being gone or that you're getting over your bad mood or whatever. It's that there was actual human connection and reconciliation occurring within that. Another thing to point out is the word anger here, and I'm going to give a two-second Greek lesson, but the the second word anger, do not let the sun go down in your anger, comes from the Greek word uh, parogismos, whereas the first be angry, and that's the the second one's a noun. The first one's a verb, which is orgisete. They're related words, but this second one has a prefix on it, the para, which makes it an intensified, blistering, festering, boiling, violent form of anger. So when Paul is saying, do not let the sun go down on your anger, he's talking about that anger. But he's not saying let the sun go down on your righteous anger when there is a reason for that to be maintained. And the reason I say that is that some of these things we already talked about, um, oppression, genocide, death, disease, destruction, all effects of the fall, these are things that haven't gone away yet and they still persist. God's disposition does not change toward those things, therefore ours should not as well. So the sun does not go down on that anger that we rightfully have, and yet we're still not supposed to sin. We still have that disposition that God holds of dissatisfaction with the way that the world is currently, but we also do that while maintaining the, fruits of the, the fruit rather, of the Spirit from Galatians 5. You might know the list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are things we still maintain with this anger, which can be rather confusing, and we'll get to that at the end, how um, positive things can flow from this righteous form of anger. And now we know Jesus cared deeply about reconciliation. as We're talking about the reconciliation here within this not letting the sun go down. Uh, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5 about Jesus' ministry of, of reconciliation, which is reconciling both the world to God vertically, but also the world to one another horizontally. 
And Jesus further wrote in Matthew 5, 21 through 24, and I'm reading here from the New Revised Standard Version, so it's a little bit different than if you have an English Standard Version text, but still the same message. You have heard it said of, of those ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, thanks, uh, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has said something against you, leave your gift there on the altar and go. Be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come offer your gift. Jesus cares deeply about reconciliation. When we are angry, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Be reconciled to your brother or sister. And in fact, don't even leave your offering or tithe in the box in the back until you are reconciled to your brother or your sister. So my uh, third point here, actually it's my fourth, is uh, never let anger stir. Quickly become reconciled to one another, even when it's costly. And I have a quick quote here that I like from author Adele Alberg Calhoun. True forgiveness is more than a high ideal. It is a costly, heart-ending process that refuses to ignore or minimize wrongdoing. It places blame. It condemns the wrong, but it also gives the wrongdoer a gift. Forgiveness separates wrongdoers from their wrong by refusing to label them all as bad. It refuses to add this one injustice to the injustice done to them. Church, let's break the cycle of injustice. When injustice is committed against us, we do not have the right to enact injustice against another. When your boss mistreats you, be angry, but do not sin. When your kid is bullied at school, be angry, but do not sin. When your property is damaged, be angry, but do not sin. When you're defrauded, be angry, but do not sin. Now, in some of these areas, there might be necessary retribution, retribution or restitution. We should not think that, God's, that uh, us being reconciled is somehow divorced from God's justice being enacted. We're told, in fact, in Romans 13, that God does enact his justice um, he doesn't act retribution through the rightful authority. So if you're wronged in the workplace, yes, you can still go to HR. If something happens in the school, yes, get school administration involved. If somebody commits something, uh, some illegal action against you, yes, get the police involved. But these are not divorced from the idea that reconciliation needs to occur in our heart and reconciliation needs to occur between one another. And just one other cautionary measure that wise psychologists, and I do want to give props to psychologists on this, at this point, tell us, um, when there are issues of abuse, whether it's uh, verbal, physical, sexual, emotional, spiritual, that in not every case should somebody who's been abu abused be reconciled physically back in an actual physical relationship, a restored relationship with their abuser. That doesn't mean, however, that reconciliation and forgiveness still can't take, care, uh, take place in the heart. Jesus, for example, as he hung on the cross, Luke tells us in chapter 23, as he's hanging there, he yells out to the Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's referring to his executioners. Jesus cared deeply about reconciliation and forgiveness. But in most instances, we aren't facing those extreme circumstances. We just sit there and seethe in some form of anger because we feel wronged, and that's what the sun needs to go down on. And often this is our failure to repent. It's failure to acknowledge where we are wrong in situations, and even if we are an innocent party, it's our heart that still has a wrong posture. We're forgetting that the God of all creation, who loved all creation, forgave us. And it was the most costly gift possible for that forgiveness to take place. God, out of his anger that was necessary in response to the world not being the way it's supposed to be, to the response of the disruption of his good creation and good created order, poured out that anger upon Christ to absorb it willingly so we don't have to. 
out of that, we receive grace because we are sinners in need of grace. And as such, we should extend grace to others. Grace is costly. It costs everything for Christ. But we shouldn't cheapen that. Miroslav Volf writes, next quote, uh, whether we are aggressive, uh, sorry, aggressors or victims, genuine repentance demands that we take ourselves, so to say, out of the mesh of the small and big evil deeds that characterize so much of our social intercourse. We refuse to explain our, be our behavior or accuse others, and we simply take our wrongdoing upon ourselves. I have sinned in my words and in my thoughts and in my deeds, as the Book of Common Prayer writes. So we'll get to the last part of the text here, and then we'll close up pretty soon. I want to get back to verse 27, Ephesians 4, 27. All right, so this last part, and give no opportunity to the devil. And this, could be, this word opportunity can be translated a couple of different ways. The New International Version actually says, do not give the devil a foothold. And the New Revised Standard Version used something I specifically like, which is do not make room for the devil. Now, I don't know if this passage was on Paul's mind when he was writing this, but it makes me think of, in Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel. And as in Ephesians, Paul is making a connection between the devil and anger. I think he's make a similar connection is being made here in Genesis 4, and I'll explain that after we um, tell a bit of the story and then get to the text. So we all know the story, and I'll just summarize really quickly. So Cain was a tiller of the soil. He brought forth vegetation from the ground. Um, Abel was a shepherd. He cared for sheep. That's what shepherds do, in case you didn't know. And uh, Cain brought, uh, presented to God a gift of fresh produce, whereas Abel presented to God the firstborn of his flock. God accepted Abel's offering, but not Cain's. So Cain, and we pick up here in Genesis 4, 5b through 8. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So I mentioned before I read this that there was a connection that Paul's making between anger and the devil, and I believe that connection here is, is, is here as well. The Lord speaking to Cain, does not use the word devil, but he does personify sin. Sin is crouching at his door, and he tells Cain that he needs to rule over it. While Paul says to not, and I'm quoting from the New Revised Standard Version, do not make room for the devil, Cain instead, as sin was crouching at his door, he certainly gave sin a room. He opened up an Airbnb and gave sin the royal treatment. He let Satan, the sin here personified, have a foothold that took his anger that he had toward his brother Abel, and it led to the first recorded murder in history. When Cain could have let the sun go down on his anger, he could have been reconciled to God and to his brother. He instead let something tragic happen. This makes me think of earlier what we covered in Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, where Paul refers to the whole household of God being built up into the temple of the Lord. We collectively, there's a plural there, are the temple, not just your own personal body is the temple. We all are together. But let's not make rooms within our temple, within our collective community together as the body of the Christ for the devil. As anger is upon us as a community, we need to push that out together. And this anger can even, the devil can have a foothold even in our righteous anger. So out of righteous anger, we can share with God in a uh, disposition toward things not being the way they're supposed to be. So let's say, for example, uh, there's a certain area of systemic injustice that's on your mind, something that breaks the heart of God, something that angers God. But rather than doing something productive, you let the devil get a small foothold, maybe a toenail, and you set to Facebook to slander somebody because of their political solution to this problem that you see, because they don't agree with your political solution, something I'm guilty of. I've had to delete Facebook comments I'm not proud of. Um, that is where we let the devil have a foothold. But there is still a positive way to channel this righteous anger. And that begins with prayer and lament. Emmanuel Katongel and Chris Rice write, The first language of the church in a deeply broken world is not strategy but prayer. 
the journey of reconciliation is grounded in a call to see uh, and encounter the rupture of this world so truthfully that we are literally slowed down. We are called to a space where any explanation or action is too easy, too fast, too shallow. A space where the right response can, even, can only be a desperate cry directed to God. We are called to learn the anguished cry of lament. When we lament, we agree with God that the world is not supposed to be. We shout with the psalmist from Psalm 13, How long, O Lord? We are not okay with things being this way. We lament, we pray, and then rather than just studying to Twitter or Facebook to express our anger, we maybe read a book. Maybe we discuss with others who disagree with us. Maybe we pray and meditate that the Spirit might be laying on our hearts something, some productive action to get involved in. Maybe for whatever cause is on your mind, it might be giving financially to a relief organization. Maybe it's volunteering with said organization. Maybe it's getting involved with foster care or adoption when you hear of misplaced families. Maybe it's organizing a prayer vigil or a peaceful demonstration, emphasis on peaceful, not a violent, angry, picketing fest that we see happen on the news all the time. There are positive things that we can do to channel this anger, but we don't move too fast. We don't rush to action. We slow down, we pray, we lament. God's got this. We don't have to rush to action. We pray to see what the Holy Spirit has on our mind, and we do, out of our anger, rightly express what we're feeling. And church, none of us are off the hook with the prayer and lament and having this sense of anger, which again is imperative, be angry. Paul writes in Philippians 2.5 that we are to have the mind of Christ among us. So having the mind of Christ among us, we are to agree with God that the world is not the way it's supposed to be, that we are not okay with the brokenness in our midst. We don't sit passively, we, don't, we aren't complacent when we hear bad or sad or controversial news. We don't stick our heads in the sand and say, we can't handle this, it's too sad. Jesus saw the sadness in the of the world, it broke his heart and he entered into brokenness to become the solution. And we, following the path of Christ, need to do the same. However, we as a community are also in disrepair. We see divisions and splinters within the church worldwide. We see that within our own local bodies, within our family, within our friendships. So we need to check our own inner health first and consider who do we need to be reconciled with today so that then we, as the body of Christ, collectively, can rightly be the vessel, can rightly be the mirror that casts God's light, into, that shines into the dark places within our midst, so we can be more productive and be effective in the way that we enter into the mission that God has invited us into, this ministry of reconciliation. So yes, we are to be reconciled. We are to forgive one another and seek forgiveness for ways that we have wronged others. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give an opportunity to the devil. Now to make this an official Redemption Tempe sermon, I have to close with a C.S. Lewis quote. It's super short. I love it though. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Thanks be to God. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and close in, pr uh, go ahead and close in prayer and then we'll um, continue with the service. Father God, I thank you for your love for us that is so vast and so deep and so far beyond our comprehension. I thank you that as you see the brokenness in the world, as you see things the way they are not supposed to be, I thank you that you actively sent your son to humbly and willingly put on flesh, dwell among us, and take the most, upon himself the most costly gift to bring about reconciliation within this world. I thank you that Jesus cared about this 
about bringing down this dividing wall of hostility. I pray, Lord, that by your spirit, we would keep that wall down, that we would not stack another brick or lay some more mortar. And when we do, God, when we allow um, issues to be unreconciled within our midst, I pray that you would continue smashing down those walls, keep our dividing wall down. Spirit, give us your strength and your might to walk with us this week in our places of work and play and pray and rest. We pray that we would do all of those things unto your glory. We love you. Help us to love you more. Help us to love each other more. In Christ's precious name, amen.